Don't you love worshiping the Lord? I love worshiping the Lord with you. We are in the second to the last book of the Old Testament. We are in the book of Zechariah. We ended in the middle of a chapter last week. Uh, we're in chapter 11, uh, verse 7 tonight. I'm just going to read uh, 7 to 13, and then we'll pick it up after that. Uh, we're in one of those sections of the Bible where, you know, a lot of times it's the sticky parts, it's the parts that we haven't ever read or maybe even never even heard a sermon on, uh, but yet they're so full of, of truth. As I reminded you last week, uh, Zechariah is the most quoted of all the minor prophets in the New uh, Testament. It is also the longest of the, the minor uh, prophets. Uh, Zechariah is one of those apocalyptic books that has a lot of parables, has a lot of imagery, as we're going to see here starting in chapter seven or chapter 11, uh, verse uh, 7. It says there, So I shepherded the flock doomed to slaughter. Hence the afflicted of the flock, and I, I took for myself two staves, the one I called favor, and the other I called union. So I shepherded the flock. Then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month, for my soul was impatient with them, and their soul also was weary of me. And then I said, I will not shepherd you. What is to die, let it die. And what is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated. And let those who remain consume one another's flesh. And I took my staff favor and I cut it in pieces to break my covenant, which I had cut with all the people. So it was broken on that day. And thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of Yahweh. And I said to them, them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. And Yahweh said to me, throw it to the potter, that valuable price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of Yahweh. And so, Father, tonight as we approach your magnificent word, as we read maybe a section that we've never even read before, but yet it, it portrays what happens in the New Testament in such vivid detail, Lord, it, it's truly hard to sit before you, especially during those times of, of silence, as we, you know, many times want to fill that silence with, with the things, our, our, our own thoughts, uh, even just, you know, words or singing or whatever it may be, all good, but your word is better. Your, your words to us are better. And so, Lord, during those times of silence, maybe even tonight as we, we read through this section here, the conviction that may happen in our own lives, Lord, that we wouldn't ignore the prompting of your Holy Spirit. That we would desire to refine ourselves, that, that we would allow you to refine us, that we would allow discipline to come into our own lives, Lord. We desire to look more and more like you, that we would desire to be holy as you are holy. And in those hard times, in those times where, where it feels like um, uh, it, it's uncomfortable, it hurts, 
that we would be um, sensitive to your Holy Spirit, that you would soften our own heart, soften our own neck. We would have that desire to follow hard after you, Lord. So, Lord, we thank you for these, these obscure books in the Bible, uh, the, the, this, these precious books in the Bible, Lord, that are so full of truth, as relevant as today as they were when they were written, Lord. So, Lord, I thank you so much for these, my friends, my family. I ask you to bless them tonight. You would speak clearly to us with your power. In Jesus' name we pray. Uh, amen. Amen. Uh, we, we've been talking about shepherding, and, and Zechariah has now taken over uh, the responsibility of shepherding the flock of God. Remember, last week we, we talked about all the various religious leaders during this time, and this is what's called the post exilic time the the nation of israel have been in bondage for 70 years in babylon they come back to the land they they rebuilt the temple of god that was destroyed during the time of of jeremiah and, and now there's this new temple there there's these you know new um group of people that are in these religious leadership positions but yet they have not obeyed god in fact, they've turned from God, and Zechariah now has taken the responsibility of shepherding the people of Israel. And just like any good shepherd, what is one of the utensils or one of the um, tools that a shepherd uses? It's a staff, right? And, and a rod, too. Uh, but, but the staff that we're going to see here, in fact, there's going to be two staffs uh, that Zechariah is going to cut in half or break in half. The first one is called favor, and the other one is called uh, union. Uh, I, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, sheep, whether it's on the five freeway, you know, on the side of the five freeway, maybe up in Tatchby, uh, various other places that you see these, these sheep. And, and normally the, the shepherd uses these various implements, whether it's a stick or, or a staff or something, to prod the sheep, to get them to go where he wants them to go, right? And, and normally, which sheep always gets the kind of, you know, tapping? Yeah, the ones that are behind, right? It's not the ones that are in front, it's the ones that are behind, right? You know, it's those ones that are straggling. And what does the shepherd have to do? He kind of has to uh, nudge them. Uh, These the shepherd's staves that we're seeing here have specific names. The very first one here is the word favor. And again, just like a shepherd with his sheep, uh, is the shepherd responsible for those sheep? And, and a, a good shepherd will always want the best for his sheep, right? Always. Uh, the second one there is the word union, okay? And of course, sheep, what happens with sheep? Well, normally, when you have a, a group of sheep, do you want them all scattered all over the place? Why? It's hard to corral them, right? You, you want them in a, you know, especially a, a tight uh, ball, if you will, or a tight uh, group. Why? So that they can easily go from one place to another. Both of these staves, by the way, are going to be cut in half. Look at verse 10 there. And I took my staff favor. I cut it in pieces for to break my covenant, which I had cut with all 
the peoples. In fact, after the book of Malachi, there's going to be a time of silence. 400 years where there's not going to be a single word from God until John the Baptist comes on the scene there in the New Testament, until Jesus comes as the Messiah and preaches from the Mount of Beatitudes. For 400 years, can you imagine that, where there's not a single prophet and not a single word of God? In fact, if you're here in approximately a month, by the time we finish Zechariah and also the book of Malachi, we're going to do a short, very probably very short, uh, study on those 400 years. And it's 100% historical. We don't see it particularly in uh, the scriptures themselves. But what happened between Malachi and Matthew? 400 years of silence. Why didn't God speak? And this is one of those clues that we have to that time uh, period. God is going to be silent for 400 years. I, I don't know if you've ever had a friend before. That, that maybe stopped talking to you? Or, or maybe even a spouse, I don't know. Hopefully they were your friend too at the same time, you know. But it's one of those things when, when, when somebody keeps talking to you over and over and over again and, and you just say, I want, I want silence, and then they give it to you. <clears throat> you understand how much you need that person when they're quiet, right? You actually want them to talk maybe. You actually want, especially if it's someone that you value in your life. How much more so for God? You see, the Israelites, they wanted God to be quiet, stop sending your prophets, and God did. For 400 years, favor is going to be cut. Verse 11, so it was broken on that day, and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of Yahweh. Verse 12, and I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then Yahweh said to me, throw it to the potter. That valuable price at which I was valued. By the way, this is God talking. This, this is Yahweh talking. This is the God of the entire universe being valued being put down to this very, very small amount of money, 30 shekels, 30 days wages, one month's wages. By the way, you've heard that before. You just didn't know where it came from. In fact, every single time, whether it's at Easter time or the week leading up to Easter time, we read these verses. Look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 15 to 16 quoting these verses from Zechariah. Uh, quoting these two verses, bringing it not only to the New Testament time period, but understanding that Jesus was valued so little. And by the way, this verse had to be predicted as true. It had to be fulfilled. Matthew 26, verse 15 and 16, it says this, and said, what are you willing to give me to deliver him to you? This is Judas talking. And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Skipping ahead there to Matthew chapter 27, verse 9. 
Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them to the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. By, by the way, if you read the book of Jeremiah, and if you were here about two years ago, we actually went through the book of Jeremiah. I know it was a long time ago, uh, but, but you'll never find that verse in the book of Jeremiah. This is one of those verses in the, book, the Bible or in the book of Matthew where critics point out that, you know, well, that's not in Jeremiah, so the Bible's probably wrong, right? No, it's in, it's in the prophets. It's in this group, uh, the scroll of Jeremiah, which would have included the book of Zechariah and a lot of the minor prophets. This is quoting from the book of Zechariah, part of this scroll that would have contained many of the prophets, Jeremiah just being the first of those uh, prophets. And it's interesting to look how specific this verse is, quoted some 500 years before by Zechariah, determining that these 30 shekels would be used to buy the price of betrayal. The price of a kiss, by the way. Because you remember what Judas did. What, what, what did Judas do on that last supper, that, that upper room? The, the, the story that we say every time we have communion on the first Wednesday or the, the first Sunday of the month. 30 shekels to betray Jesus Christ. And Judas, as he's doing this, as, as he's uh, going through this transaction, if you will, remembering his scriptures. And by the way, where is it put? Where is this 30 shekels thrown to? The potter's field. Not, not only the exact price, but the exact place that Zechariah quotes here. In fact, going back to Zechariah chapter 11, verse 13, he says this, Then Yahweh said to me, this is, this is God talking. This isn't Zechariah talking. This is God talking. He, he's now talking in the first person. He's going to use the word I. Throw it to the potter, that valuable price at which I was valued by them. And, and if Jesus was the one that was betrayed, what does that equate Jesus to? God himself. Be, being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. 30 days wages. So I took the shekels of silver, threw them to the potter in the house of Yahweh, verse 14. Then I cut in pieces my second staff, union, to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. What, what, what happens when brotherhood is broken or, or unity is broken? What, what, what happens when that, that group of sheep no longer stay together? They go all over the place. They, they go their own way, if you will. What happens to a church that's divided? What happens to a nation that is divided? What happens to a family that is divided? What happens to any 
group that may be divided. They have to go by definition, different direction. Have to, right? Otherwise they're together. You're, you, you can't go in the same direction and be in disunity. There, there, there's a splitting up of the group. By the way, these two uh, tribes here, these two nations, this happened after King Solomon died. It had happened for most of the history of the nation of Israel after King Solomon uh, died. There was a split. You had the northern kingdom of Israel. You had the southern kingdom of Judah. And then for a short time, when the nation of Israel came back from Babylon, we saw this earlier, we see all the tribes come together in unity for the first time in hundreds of years, by the way. They have a common goal. They have a common purpose. But then something happens, the Jews or the, the people of Judah or the people that live in Jerusalem, J-E-W, where we get our word Jew uh, from, those people that, that thought of themselves as 100% Jewish. We, we, we have no impurities in our blood. Didn't like those that were half-breed, the nation of Israel, those that were called Samaritans or that had their capital in Samaria. In fact, that's exactly where the nation of Israel had their capital, the northern kingdom. And then they come back and they go to Samaria and Jesus comes along and he actually loves the Samaritans, by the way. He actually takes time to talk to them. But, but for the nation as a whole, they hated one another. The Jews and the Samaritans despised one another. They hated each other until who comes on the scene? Jesus does. He, even the disciples, they, they wonder, why is he talking to a Samaritan woman, right? Why would he use Samaritans as an example in his parables of the good Samaritan, right? Why would he ever do that? Because God loves all his people, right? We'll see more of that as we... Continue on here, continuing there in verse 15. Then Yahweh said to me, take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I'm going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who face annihilation, seek the young, heal the broken, or sustain the one standing, but will consume the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their you see, a, a good shepherd always cares for the sheep, but what does a worthless or foolish shepherd do? Do they care about the welfare of the sheep? No. Uh, look at this. I mean, it's really graphic, by the way. It's kind of scary how it describes it, but what is he going to do with these sheep? Is he going to help them? Is he going to somehow be there for them, this worthless, foolish shepherd? No. He's going to slaughter them. He's going to fleece the flock, if you will. He's going to abuse those things that he's put over to care for. And of course, this is, you know, metaphorical or a parable of, of how the leaders of Israel are treating uh, the Israelites. The, the leaders of Jerusalem are, are treating uh, the Jews, the 
the leaders in the land are treating their own people. They're abusing the flock rather than taking care of them. Look at what it says there. And of course, uh, judgment always starts in the house of God. We've read that also in the book of, of Zechariah as well. Look what it says to these leaders, verse 17. Woe to the worthless shepherd who forsakes the flock. A sword will be on his arm and on his right eye. His arm will be totally dried up and his right eye will be utterly dimmed. The consequences for being a bad leader of the people of God is high. See, God's going to judge those worthless uh, shepherds. Chapter 12, verse 1, we, we saw this same title. We've, we've been talking about this title that we see here again in chapter 12. In fact, this is the second time we've seen it in uh, the book of, of Zechariah. We saw it in the beginning of chapter 9, the, the oracle of the word of Yahweh concerning Israel. Remember this word oracle means burden. It's this burden that has been given to the prophets, prophets like Zechariah, prophets like Haggai prophets like uh, Malachi, these various prophets that God gives a burden uh, to, and God asks that prophet to give that burden away. In fact, God places that burden on the shoulders, on the hearts of that prophet until he does give it away. It's that conviction, if you will. Uh, he does the same to us, by the way. Have you ever had that experience where God asked you to pray for somebody? Or to talk to somebody. And it, it, it burdens your heart. It weighs on your soul until you actually do it. It's the same thing that we see here in the book of Zechariah. The of man within them. Who is giving Zechariah this burden? The God of creation. The one who created everything. By the way, of course, we, we read about this in the book of of Genesis uh, in very great uh, detail, but did every single one of the Old Testament prophets believe that it was God who created the entire universe? It's the authority that they had coming from God himself. Verse two there, it says, behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes a reeling to all the peoples all around. Now the one in siege against Jerusalem will also be against uh, Judah, but it will be in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who heave it uh, up will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against And I don't know how macho you are. Uh, I, I don't know if you've ever tried to outlift another person and maybe, you know, it's it's not so much women, it's mostly guys, you know, that do this. They're just stupider, you know, they, they're just dumber, you know. I can lift that, right? And they try to impress someone and they, they lift it and then they get a hernia that affects them for the rest of their life, you know. Right? It, it, this is exactly what is being described here, but for the nation of Israel. Where, where, where people are, are trying to move them out of the way. They're, tr they're trying to lift them, and they're getting a hernia because of it. 
Where, where, where actually their own body is being hurt trying to move the people of Israel. By, by the way, the land of Israel is Israel. They, they don't completely inhabit the entire land uh, right now. That's not going to happen until uh, what's called the millennial uh, kingdom. Uh, but people have been trying to move Israel for centuries. And are they still there? Does God always bring them back? Again, fulfillment of the word of God. And verse four, in that day declares Yahweh, I will strike every horse with bewilderment, his rider with madness, but I will open my eye, eyes to watch over the house of Judah will, while I strike every horse of the people with blindness and the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, a strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through Yahweh of hosts, their God who is watching over, and, and this title is very, very specific, by the way. We've seen it many, many times, Yahweh of hosts or the Lord of hosts. The one who is in charge of every single one of the armies of heaven, protecting his people. How powerful is that, by the way? He watches over us as well. In fact, you can even include your name there. Does God watch over you? Does he support you? When it, when it feels like, you know, maybe everyone may be against you or when, when someone puts you down, who is on your side? It's God. He's a strong support, by the way. He's a powerful support. Verse 6, In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a fiery laver among the pieces of wood and a fiery torch among the sheaves. So they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding people. While Jerusalem will again be inhabited in its own place in Jerusalem. Very, very specific there. Specifically a city. In fact, we're going to see this in, in chapter 14. How, how God brings the people back to a specific place. Not, not to just some random place or, or to just some place that has been chosen by other people to a specific place that God had given them even during the time of Abraham. Jerusalem itself. The promised land. Verse 7, Yahweh also will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above uh, Judah. In that day, Yahweh will defend Defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and one who stumbles among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of Yahweh before them. When David's house speaks, when the nation of Judah proclaims something, it is as if God proclaims it. Wow. How powerful is that? The stamp of God on the people of Israel. Verse 9, And it will be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. You see, Judah will be the representatives of God to the world. You see a lot of this in the book of Revelation, by the way. Uh, this happens during the tribulation uh, time period. You see all these apocalyptic warnings, if you will, 
in the book of, of Zechariah. Of course, we all know that Zechariah was written about 500 years before the book of Revelation was even written. And yet it's speaking of a lot of these same things that John on the Isle of Patmos is going to talk about in uh, the book of Revelation. It's amazing how the Bible is so united. Verse 10, it says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. You see what's going to happen during this time period? They're going to finally recognize who the Messiah is. The one that they had rejected. The one that they had pierced. Remember, uh, crucifixion had not even been invented during this time. Uh, crucifixion wasn't invented until about 200 uh, B.C. Zechariah was written about 500 uh, B.C. And Zechariah, just like Isaiah, ha ha is looking to this time period where, where there's this torture implement, the cross itself, where someone was really uh, literally pierced to that cross, pierced to that piece of wood, nailed to the cross. And Zechariah is describing this event. The people of Israel are finally going to realize it was they that crucified their Messiah. In fact, look at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastening for our peace fell upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. What, what, why did the Messiah die? Why, why did Jesus Christ die? For us. For, for our transgressions, my transgressions, for our iniquities, my, my iniquities. He, he was chastened for our peace so that we would be healed, right? All, all these are in inclusive terms. All, all these terms that are that are used here include not just the Jews but the world as a whole. Did God love the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son, right? That whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, not only does Revelation and John they they both quote uh, these verses here. They they quote the book the the verse from Zechariah. And also uh, the, this amazing section that we see here, it, it's this verse that they quote, not, not the verse from Isaiah 53.5. They, they quote the verse from Zechariah. They, they, they quote this verse from Zechariah as he is being pierced, John actually being there at the foot of the cross, seeing Jesus Christ on it. And then in John, the Gospel of John, and Revelation, quoting the verse from Zechariah. Can you imagine John being there with, with Jesus' mother and the Mary and, and the other Mary and, and all these women that are down there, him being the only guy, by the way, that's left of all the other apostles. And what is he doing? He's remembering this verse, Zechariah. Chapter 12, verse 10. As he's down there, 
at the foot of the cross. Remembering this prophecy. Bitterly weeping over a firstborn. Was Jesus Christ the firstborn of Mary? And by the way, what was his last human responsibility there on the cross? John, this is your mother. Mary, this is your son. The, the last human responsibility that he had, the care of his mom. As the firstborn, he was responsible for his widow mom. And now giving that responsibility to John, the beloved. It, it, it's beautiful, by the way, how everything ties together. Continuing on there in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 11. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadradim in the plain of Megiddo. You've probably heard this term before. Again, you know, not knowing where it comes from. In fact, uh, there's this valley that's, you know, similar to what we call the Central Valley here in California. It's just one-third the size. Very, very similar, you know, surrounded by mountains on all sides. You know, Israel being a, a coastal nation, uh, the long west side, just like California, exposed to the entire Mediterranean Ocean. And then there's a group of mountains or high hills. And then you have a valley and then you have another group of high hills. They're, they're agricultural regions, just like we do in our central coast as well. And it's interesting because this Valley of Megiddo is where we get the term Armageddon. It's where a great battle will be taking place during the time of uh, Revelation. Again, Zechariah describing this, not as in detail as what uh, uh, the book of Revelation does, but here it describes it in a different way. It says in verse 12, and the land will mourn each family alone and the family of the house of David alone and their wives alone and the family of the house of Nathan alone and their wives alone and the family of the house of Levi alone and their wives alone and the family of the Shemites alone and their wives alone and all the families that remain each family alone and their wives alone what will happen during the battle of armageddon will it destroy family and, and, and by the way all of these you know terms that we see here a, a lot of it is is the wives are going to be left as widows why because their men are going to be fighting and there's going to be that valley filled with with blood even to the bridle of a horse the bible says you see, it's interesting also in the book of John, chapter 19, verse 25. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and, and Mary Magdalene. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, his aunt, if you will, uh, another lady by the name of Mary, and, and then Mary Magdalene, all these women that are at the foot of the cross, all alone, by the way, at the foot of the cross. 
What has happened to most of the men except for John himself? What happened to them? They went away. They, they ran. It, it was the courage of those women at the foot of the cross. Weeping, crying, mourning. And the one that was up there on the cross dying for their sin. By the way, it's the courage of a mother too, right? The, the love of a mother, if you will. That's able to conquer even fear over everything. Just wanting to be next to her son as he's dying there on the cross. I, I, lo I love this, by the way. I mean, it's it's one of those you know you you read these these chapters, you read these books in the in the Old Testament, and and maybe you know we we read them just for a check mark, or you know I, I I read that you know, and I'm probably never going to go back to it again, or I read it just to get my you know uh, uh, mark so that I could finish the Bible in a year or whatever it was. But but it's so full of truth. It's so full of fulfillment of what's going to happen during the time of Jesus Christ. In fact. Starting in chapter 13, verse 1, this is exactly what it describes. I, I, I love this section. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. There is a fountain filled with blood. Remember that song? Wow. This is where it comes from. What, what did that fountain of, of the blood of Jesus Christ do for the world? Saved us from our sin, our transgressions, our iniquity, and our impurity, right? And, in, and it will be in that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered and I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass away from the land. When Jesus comes into your life, he cleanses you. In fact, that, that's the purpose of the blood. That's always been the purpose of the blood. Whether it was the lamb in the Old Testament or whether it was the blood of, of Jesus Christ, the lamb just covered. The lamb was temporary. But what does Jesus Christ's blood do in our life? Completely cleanses us, removes our sin. As far as the east is from the west, and it will be that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and his mother who gave birth to him will say, and this, by the way, is a, a false prophecy. Uh, this is talking about false prophets. We'll, we'll see that very clearly at the end here, but it's speaking about those people that that had falsely prophesied or, or said something against the word of God. They somehow profited it from it. They, these are the false prophets, the, the worthless shepherds, the foolish shepherds, if you will, who gave birth to him will say to him, you shall not live for you have spoken falsely in the name of Yahweh and his father and his mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. But by the way, there, there's a, a definite um, definition of what a prophet is in the Bible. It goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. There, there, there's a specific way that a prophet was 
always identified as a, a true prophet, a, a prophet of God. They had to be 100% correct. If they were, they were incorrect in any way, the penalty was death. Why? Why is it so serious to be a prophet of God? God values his words. God's words are important. They must always be accurate. That, that's why uh, the, you know, the Bible or the word of God ha, has stood the test of time because people have examined it for centuries. Atheists have examined it. People that, that hated the Bible examined it and they, they found it to be what? True. The word of God must be 100% correct. Verse 4, it describes what's going to happen to these false prophets, and it will be in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies it, and they will not put on a hairy mantle in order to deceive, but he will say, I, I am not a prophet. I'm a cultivator of the ground, for a man sold me as a slave in my youth. This is kind of comical, if you will, a kind of tongue-in-cheek, if you will. Normally, like, you know, John the Baptist or Elijah, they would dress in a certain way. How did, how did John the Baptist dress? Yeah, he had a hairy robe, right? You know, he, he, you know, he had, had locusts and dipped it in honey and, you know, chewed on them, you know, those, those kind of things, you know. Even though he was the, the son of the high priest, he could have been in nice robes. What, how did he dress? He, he dressed in these camel skins. And the same thing with Elijah, by the way, too. Same thing with Elisha. All, all these prophets, they, they dressed in a certain way. These false prophets are going to be ashamed of their visions because they're not uh, obeying the word of God. They're, they're falsely proclaiming these things. And what are they saying now in order to escape death? I, I'm a farmer. I'm a farmer. I, I'm not a, you know, a prophet. L look at what it says there. We'll say to him, what are these wounds struck here between your arms? And then he will say, those are which I was struck in the house of my friends. By the way, this, this you know, some people say this is a quotation of Judas. It, it, it's not a quotation of what Judas is going to do. This is what a false prophet would do when they would self-inflict wounds to themselves. Remember when Elijah was battling the prophets of Baal? What, what did they do? How, how did they try to get the attention of their God? They cut themselves, right? People do that, by the way, today. It's unfortunate, but they do, right? Whether it's to seek attention or, or whatever it may be. You see, these false prophets, they're, they're, they, they're going to be scared, and they're going to deny their self-inflicted wounds. Verse 7, awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the men. My associate declares Yahweh of hosts, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. This is a quotation in Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. Again, all these various quotations. I mean, you just read the Gospels accounts, and, and Zechariah is quoted over and over and over again. And most people are oblivious to, the, to it, by the way. This book is so important. Matthew chapter 26, uh, verse 31, it says, Then Jesus said to them, 
you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Did this have to occur? Where, where, where the apostles left the Messiah. Now, not all of them had to leave, but they, they were scattered. In fact, the only one that was there at the foot of the cross was John, by the way. But then Jesus says something in the very next verse, very, very short. He says, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Will God come back and restore his sheep? Will he do that? In fact, that's exactly what Jesus did. Remember, you know, there on the, the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, he's cooking fish. And, and Peter and the apostles, they're all on the Sea of Galilee trying to fish. And, and of course, just like, you know, before, just like many, many times before, these are professional fishermen, by the way. They caught nothing, right? And, and then there's this guy on the shore that shouts to them and says, have you caught anything? And Peter yells back, no, we got, got nothing. He said, put it on the other side, right? The guy from the shore, immediately, John, by the way, recognizes him, tells Peter, Peter takes off his, his cloak, he jumps into the, the Sea of Galilee there, swims to the shore, and this is when Jesus restores him and say, do you love my sheep? Do you love my lambs? Do you, do you love me more than these? Do you agape me more than these? He restores that group of apostles that had been scattered and brings them back together. It's absolutely beautiful, by the way. Just a, a couple more verses here. Verses 8 and 9, I'll, I'll read both these together. And it will be in all the land, declares Yahweh, that two parts in it will be cut off and breathe their last, but the third will be left in it. And will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people, and they will say, Yahweh is my God. You see, there's always a remnant that God has. And, and by the way, the, this remnant that we see here, you know, where, where two-thirds are destroyed and there's only a third that's left, the, the, the same language or the same imagery we, we saw, and by the way, it's absolutely beautiful if you read it from the perspective of Hosea. Hosea says very similar words. In Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, he says, I, I will sow her for myself in the land, and I, and I will have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion, and I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. Do you know who he's talking about? The Gentiles. He's talking about us, those of us without a single drop of Jewish blood. And, and then at the very end of that verse, he says, and they will say, you are my God, by the way. And, and every single one of these terms are, are referring to as kids, too. We, you can go back and 
and listen to the beginning of the book of Hosea. I mean, it's just absolutely beautiful. One of the most romantic sections in the entire Bible, by the way, that this guy who has an unfaithful wife, you know, portraying God with the people of Israel and, and going after seeking her, wooing her, rather than making her come back to him. He actually goes and, and woos her back, romanticizes her all over again and, and wins her back to him just as God does to every single one of us. It's beautiful, by the way. I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to finish chapter 14. I, I just want to show you a couple pictures, okay? I'm, I'm going to whet your you know, uh, appetite for next week. This is going to be a cliffhanger, if you will, okay? The, look at this picture. I took this picture, actually, just in February. This is the west or the eastern wall. This is one of those sections in the, the Bible, especially chapter 14, that's going to be so in fact, you're going to walk through those gates. If you're a Christian right now, you're going to walk through those gates. Those sealed gates, you're going to walk through. And people for centuries have been trying to stop the prophecies that we're going to see in chapter 14 of Zechariah. Because they know what's going to happen. Where, where literally the Kidron Valley, that, that middle part of that wall is going to be split down the middle. And Jesus and his holy ones, that includes you, by the way, are going to walk right through. One of the most amazing things is you're not going to have to pay for it, by the way, either. You don't have to pay a certain amount of money to go there, okay? You're going to get to go there for free. Here's another uh, view of that same, same wall. I, I love the sky, by the way. It's just beautiful, the blue sky. But, but people not only have sealed up that wall, but they've put graves in front of it too. And of course, graves are considered unclean. These are Arab graves on that, that side uh, there, close to uh, the wall, uh, trying to prevent, you know, uh, you know, Jesus or the Messiah walking through that section, thinking somehow they're going to discourage him from doing it. So your homework this week, your, your, your cliffhanger, if you will, uh, for next week is to read chapter 14. Because this is one of those sections that is pivotal to what it means to be a Christian, knowing that you're going to be there on the Mount of Olives and get to walk through these gates. And, and to see them with new eyes, too, by the way. We call it the second coming. Yeah, I, I hope you really, uh, you know, really read it, um, read it multiple times, by the way. Uh, we'll be also starting the book of, of Malachi uh, next week. It's the last book of the Old Testament. I know we're almost finally there. Wow. Um, yeah, but, but Malachi is going to uh, really touch on a lot of those topics that's going to be the segue to uh, the New Testament. And so I, I encourage you, you know, just to read uh, these uh, sections. There's only five more chapters left. I mean, five more chapters. I know you can read uh, one of them uh, a day for the next uh, week. Uh, I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to look at these things because you're actually going to be there. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will actually be there. And if you don't, by the way, I'm going to be up here at the end, and I, I, I would encourage you come forward. I'm glad to talk to you about these things, about becoming a Christian. 
about knowing uh, Jesus Christ personally. And so, Father, tonight as we end, and I, I appreciate not only the patience of these, my, my friends and my family gathered here uh, tonight, but also the, the privilege that we have to know that, that you include us, that, that you reach out to us personally, that, that you were um, betrayed, that you were abused, that you were pierced, that you were crucified, that you died for us. Lord, I, I, I thank you so much for that. Lord, no, let us never take for granted what you did for us on the cross. And, and even the Old Testament speaks volumes to that. Looking forward to not only your, your birth and your life, but also your, your crucifixion as well. Uh, un understanding the price or the cost of our sins. Not that we have to pay for it, but that you paid for it yourself. And so, Lord, help us to truly appreciate that. As we even sang tonight, it, it's only you. It, it's, it's only you that did these things for us. It's not us. It's not what I do or, or how I do it, but what you did for us. And so, Lord, I ask that you would speak to us as we, we leave here tonight, as we go our, our separate ways, Lord, uh, that we would be your lights in a dying world, that each of us in our own sphere of influence, whether it's at our work or our families or friends or wherever it may be, that, that we would be those lights and maybe even share what we learned. Maybe whether it's the Holy Spirit revealing something to someone here and, and them sharing it to someone else and just that desire to proclaim your goodness, your love to a dying world that is without hope and we contain that hope. We have that hope, that peace that passes all understanding, that desire to know that we have a, a hope that is assured, a, a sure hope that can only be found in you. That joy that just radiates from our lives, Lord, because of you. It goes even beyond the circumstances or the criticism of other people, Lord. Just to have that desire for you. So, Lord, I ask you, bless these, my friends, my family gathered here, those that may be watching online, Lord, I ask that you use us for your glory this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.